Last time I was up here, we started talking about the spiritual forces and the spiritual warfare, the spiritual landscape. Um, we did. We looked through Mark. We looked through other passages in the four Gospels, and then we got into what Paul was saying, and we had a whiteboard, and we threw some stuff up here that was kind of crazy and wacky, and I said, we'll return to that, and we'll start going through the crazy and the wacky. We'll try to make some sense of it based on... Uh, current findings and things that we have now at our disposal. And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, This is a little list of things that we looked at that we threw down on the list for needing some explaining and looking at. And again, we're not going to cover all of this today. There's a couple more Sundays of this. Uh, Giants slash shades, that word shadim, uh, that gets translated into demon. Uh, territorial spirits, unclean spirits, slash impure spirits, principalities and powers, authorities, dominions, thrones, rulers, the different names used for those entities, uh, worshiping other gods, the difference in demons, slash spirits, the prayer and fasting where Jesus is making a distinguishing mark about certain spiritual beings coming out with prayer and fasting as opposed to just being immediately cast out, uh, the concept of legal dominions, um, the idol worship, and the devil and his angels. And so we're going to look at different things to conclude what we looked at last time. Today I'm going to cover principalities and powers, which at the end we'll cover quite a few of these, but it won't get into um, some of the other stuff that's on this list. Um, Just a reminder, when we read the Bible, we want to let the Bible speak. We don't want to read into the Bible as much as we can. Um, So let us put behind preconceived thoughts and traditions, and let's just see what the Bible has to say. The Bible can be weird and supernatural. That's okay. Our God is supernatural. There's going to be supernatural in our Bible. Um, Yahweh is supernatural. We need to look at language. We need to look at source materials. Um, Here we are in 2021. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have older copies of the Septuagint. And we still have our Masoretic text, and we're able to look into these different things and see uh, kind of the difference in the source materials. And it, and it does make a difference. The source materials makes a difference. And the closer we can get to the source materials that the disciples had that, that Jesus was reading as if Jesus needed the source materials. But, but if we can see what they're thinking when they're writing in our New Testament, uh, that's spectacular. And... Uh, it is great that we live in a world where people do care about archaeology and we just keep finding more and more things. Uh, we find more and more um, readings from different culture, which also our, our knowledge of Koine Greek, which the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Uh, in the 60s, they found just a treasury of writings that allowed us to go back and like totally redo our Koine Greek lexicon and then look at our New Testament again, knowing some of the newer meanings of the words and figuring out, oh, well, this meant slightly different. Again, nothing shakes the gospel in all of these discoveries. God's presence, inspired readings, I believe all of that, and the the gospel still gets through. But there's a lot of stuff there. We need to read it in the mindset of the intended audience. Paul is writing in a second temple culture. Again, we've talked about that numerous weeks. We believe that scripture is the inspired word of God, without a doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so to start with, we're going to talk about 
um, the word Elohim, just because we can get mixed up with Elohim in the Bible, and this is something even we get into with apologetics. Um, Atheists will bring some of this stuff up, talking about the different... uh, Well, this says Elohim here, and this says Elohim there. Um, We, a lot of times when we look at Elohim, we just think it is the name of God. That they just, that was their word, they called him Elohim. In the Bible, um, it's actually used in six different ways. And all the ways that it is used in denote spiritual beings. Um, Elohim usage, it is used a lot as Yahweh, God of Israel. Thousands of times in the Bible. And it's usually singular. Uh, when you look at the the Hebrew, not to get too, I mean, there's some English class stuff here, but it's it's always, there's a way that you look at it, it'll have prefix or suffix with it type idea that'll denote that it's singular. Um, it's also used in reference to members of Yahweh's council. It's used in the usage of gods and goddesses of other nations. Um, Elohim is even thrown around when people are talking about what we traditionally would call demons. And it's also used in the reference of angels. And one time in in Samuel, for whatever reason, they use it as the word for the ghost of Samuel. If anybody doesn't remember that story, it's a good Bible, it's a good uh, Sunday school story from when I was a kid. Saul goes to a witch or a medium, and this is after Saul's pretty much wiped out all the witches and mediums in, uh, in Judah at the time. And King Saul goes because Samuel is now dead, and the God, God of Yahweh is not talking to Saul anymore. He already, we're done with Saul, we're moving on with David, I'm not talking to him. And Saul is freaking out because he doesn't have that anymore, and Samuel is dead, so he can't rely on the prophet to tell him. So Saul goes in with a couple guys, and he's like, there's one more person in this country one more person in this country that might be able to get you in contact with the dead. And so he goes to this lady, whether we call her a witch or a medium. Um, we can call her a medium. People still try to talk to mediums today. But he goes to the medium, and uh, he goes in, and she doesn't necessarily realize who's coming in to her shop here. And he tells her, you know, I need you to get me Samuel. And she's like, okay, I'll get you Samuel. And uh, it, the story goes on. She does her thing. It doesn't describe her thing, but she does her thing. And she brings up Samuel, and she freaks out. She absolutely freaks out. She's like, oh, you're Saul. I know who you are now. You're Saul. Because this is really Samuel, which means she probably had certain spirits that would just come up for her for the show, and they do their thing. But she's freaking out because now Samuel's coming up out of the grave. And when they refer to Samuel at that point, she's like, in, in Hebrew, they're like, oh, you're bringing me up an Elohim. And uh, so it's the one time they use it there, too. It's just an oddball story. But the fact that this stuff is in there, like this stuff has been going on for thousands of years, the whole medium thing and the talking to dead spirits, if they're really dead spirits or if they're just funny, lying spirits trying to play a game, I don't know. She got Samuel. Samuel was very unhappy. <laughs> he makes it clear that He's unhappy with Saul doing this. And so that's, uh, that's the other sixth usage of Elohim. And the reason that's important is as we go on, we'll, we'll kind of look at that. Um, Elohim, if they refer to a being as Elohim, it is in no way, I want to make this clear, that they are equating 
Yahweh as an equal to these other spirits. So let's just talk about that right now. In multiple verses, I mean, it just the Old Testament especially is full of this. Who is there among the gods? Talking about the other gods with one of the forms of Elohim. Uh, who is like you among the gods, Yahweh? So again, there's, there's not an Elohim like Yahweh. He is the Elohim of Elohim. I mean, that's why they call him God of gods, king of kings. They bring all that language in. Um, what God El is there in the heaven or on the earth who can do according to your works and according to your mighty deeds? So as they're comparing him to these other spiritual beings, they are lifting him above those spiritual beings. And uh, part of the reason, we'll just go through these. Oh, Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heavens above or on the earth below. For you, O Yahweh, are most high over the earth. You are highly exalted above all gods. Most of the time when you see Yahweh, and they refer to Yahweh as the most high, the most high, the title itself means he is the top. It's not just your high and mighty, like sometimes we would think of high and mighty. It is a spiritual title that denotes that he is above all other spiritual beings. So when you see, like, for example, when in the New Testament, when Jesus rolls in, and he's starting to kick some demons out, and the demons refer to him as, oh, what are you doing here, son of the most high? That's them right there posturing themselves, knowing that Jesus is up there. Um, so just so you know, when you see Elohim in places, when you dig down into Hebrew and stuff, it can be a, a number of things. But there is no Elohim like Yahweh. And they'll denote it in singular that it's Yahweh. Um, we, uh, this is us culturally. We think of God and we automatically prescribe certain characteristics to God. So when we hear the word God, we just think omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, because we're thinking of the God. Old Testament believers and people from different cultures, when they would hear God, wouldn't necessarily believe that. Gods do battle with each other. There's loss. There's defeat. The Jews were singular in their belief that they were worshiping the top, who was all of these things. So that's the difference. Part of that is just our cultural. We hear God. We think all of those characteristics. Those are true characteristics only of Yahweh. And culturally, that's just... The Jews believed in these other gods, as we'll see. We see it in the New Old Testament all the time, and even in the New Testament. But there's no God like Yahweh. Who is all these things? But not these lesser guys. So that's, that's part of just the way we think about the word God. Um, so when we start digging into principalities and power, you have to do a little background work to figure out where these things come from. Um, one of these background work that... Um, kind of gives you the context of what we're getting into, is Psalm 82. So I just kind of like to take a start here with Psalm 82. Um, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is God talking to these other gods. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in the darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. 
Nevertheless, like men, you are going to die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. Um, The Hebrew for sons of the Most High is Ben Elohim, which means son of God. Um, But we're going to lowercase that and talk about that later, so we don't think that there's more than, you know, Jesus is the unique son of God. It gets into some stuff that sounds weird until you really, you get through it. So, not trying to be heretical. Um, So God has taken his place in the divine council. What's the divine council? Anybody familiar with the divine council much? Yeah, it's all over in the Bible. We don't really talk about it. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I put this in here. It didn't translate in with the picture right. It gets into the actual Hebrew with verb tenses. You can look at it later. That's not going to work today. Anyway, what it does show you is that the words are there, and the words actually say what that is transcribed as saying. It just says, sons of God. Um, Because if you look in certain translations, um, like the NIV, they're going to put in parentheses gods. And the reason they do that is because there's some thinking behind it that the gods are referring to elders of Israel. So they, they want to change the passage that God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. And by gods, they mean dead Jewish dudes. And I'm not sure how they got that, especially with as we dig into the, the biblical passages that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls and even looking at the, the Septuagint. It, I, I don't know how you have a whole bunch of dead is Jewish elders sitting in thrones around God. There's no other teaching for that in the Bible. Um, but that's kind of how they defend this passage, if you will. Um, side note on Psalm 82, the word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, the word for arise at the very end of this is the same word, anasta, in the Greek Old Testament that's used for resurrection in the New Testament numerous times which after we get through this and you go look at that passage, it's basically saying resurrect, O God, and judge the nations and take your inheritance, which theologically makes a lot of sense. Um, Psalm 89 will continue with the council language. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like you? A, great, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Again, talking about this council, this assembly. Um, when you read Psalm 89, I don't think you can get any idea that those are men um, sitting around him. Who in the skies? Who among the heavenly beings? God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Um, I think those are dead Jews. Uh, interesting story out of Kings about the council. First um, Kings 22, we're going to jump back into Tabitha's rescue plan. Um, Israel and Judah are split up. We're at this point with First with Kings 22. Um, Ahab is in charge, and he calls up his fellow king. Um, I want to go take the city. Would you partner up? By the way, you know, we're cousins. We come from the same 
Can you help me? So he comes up, he talks to Ahab. Ahab is like one of the worst kings in the Old Testament for them. And Ahab is saying, let's do this. My prophets told me this is going to work. It's going to go. This is the way to go. And uh, the other king is, hey, um, your prophets, who are your, oh, my prophets of Baal. My prophets of Baal said this is going to work. So let's do this. And the other king is like, uh, I don't, I'm not trusting your prophets of Baal. Do you have any, do you have any prophets of Yahweh up here? Because I would like to hear from people that are hearing from Yahweh. And uh, so a messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them. Now, Micaiah is the prophet of Yahweh. So they're saying, hey, Micaiah, we don't like you. Ahab made it clear in the previous passages, I got Micaiah. I got him locked up because he never says anything good. He always prophesies against me. Well, go figure. He's a prophet of Yahweh. You're a bad king. And uh, so they bring Micaiah in, and now they, it starts, we'll start right here because we get going. Micaiah says, they're telling Micaiah, hey, speak favorably. You don't like where you're at, you need to speak favorably for our king. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered them, go up and triumph, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to them, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of your Lord? So he goes in there and he just, yeah, king, go do it. You're the best. You go get it. And so Micaiah said, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, the other king, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me? But evil. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and the other said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these prophets, all of your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster on you. So it's an example of God sitting with his counsel. Spirits, it refers to them as spirit, and you can get into the Hebrew in this too, but definitely spirits. And he is asking for the council's input on this. And one of the spirits like, this is what I could do for you. I'm going to go and I'm going to be a lying spirit and the prophets of Baal. And so the Lord said, all right, that's a good idea. Go and do it. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With, the, with two, he covered his feet. The other two, he flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook the voice of him who called the, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord's of hosts. 
the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs around the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So here is Isaiah. He is now sitting in this whole throne room scene, realizes, I'm not supposed to be here. This is beyond me. I'm not worthy to be here. Um, And so the whole coal on his lips thing, whether that's symbolism, whether it was coal placed to his lips, um, so he could speak, so he could behold. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so in this case, Isaiah pipes up. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He said, go and say this to my people. So there's another, did God need Isaiah? Ultimately, God could have got the message across. Again, someone in the throne room, in this case, Isaiah was there among others when God was asking, who will I send? Um, Isaiah 24, 21, 23, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. And they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit and they will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished and the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. So here he's talking about um, the host of heaven and heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. There's a reason he's lumping them together as being punished. Um, Principalities and powers, we're getting there. Just a lot of legwork. Now, some of this stuff could sound extremely Mormon at times. Uh, Mormons have some ideas that are a little bit similar, except for the fact that they believe that God was a God among many gods back in the day, and that God earned his chance to come and do what God did here. Okay, I can't find that in the Bible. I don't think this stuff gets close to that. However, Isaiah 43 definitely puts an end to this. This idea, I don't know how Mormons get around this verse um, or this passage. And again, the Lord is, is talking. You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen, and you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed. I think that's pretty final. Um, nor shall there be any more after me. So I suppose, and this is me, I think that he's saying there is no Yahweh. There will never be another Yahweh. Um, he's already talking to to the lesser spiritual beings in other passages. Um, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaim when there was no strange God among you, again referencing the other gods, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Um, Famous scene in Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Hasatan also came before him. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down it. Talking about Satan and his accusational, he is the accuser of the brethren. Um, but again, the sons of God came to present themselves around the Lord. It's that divine counsel scene again. Um, and this can go on and on, just a couple more. Daniel's a good example of this. As I looked, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Thrones. More than one throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. This is just a description of the throne that God sat on in Ezekiel's vision, too. 
A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Um, and there's even references to them in Genesis at the beginning. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image. People try to use this as a source for the Trinity. I believe in the Trinity. I just don't think this is a necessary source for the Trinity. I think God is talking to the spiritual beings that existed before earth. Um, We were not created by those spiritual beings. He's saying, let us go down. We're going to do this. Let me make that clear. Number 27 makes it, verse 27 makes it super clear. So God, and it is the singular Elohim, meaning Yahweh. So Yahweh created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So these spiritual beings were there at the beginning. Job repeats this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who has stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Talking about the physical natures of the earth. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So this is pre-creation at the beginning. All right. He's got some hosts to heaven. They're not directly angels. They seem to be involved in some decision-making and some other things. Why does God need a divine counsel? He doesn't. He chooses to work with spirit with beings. Why does God need us to spread the kingdom of God? He doesn't. He just chooses to work with beings. So I think that we have a God who enjoys working alongside other beings, which I think we already know that. That's why he created humans. He wants that family. He's had a spiritual family. He wanted this physical family. We were all supposed to be one happy unit with God. We were supposed to make this world a wonderful place. We were supposed to, as physical being humans, we were God's. Son, we were sons of God meant to take this and run this place and run it well. And God would enjoy his time with us. It's right out of Genesis. He has spiritual beings. We don't talk about this a lot. Second Temple Jews talked about it. It's all over in our Old Testament. It doesn't shake the gospel. It just highlights more things that Jesus did. But the understanding of a divine council, the understanding of spiritual beings that sat around with God, made decisions with God. Obviously, if God didn't like that, you know, in the one place in Kings, if he didn't like that decision, he probably would have been like, just go sit down. That's that's not a great idea. Um, But he accepted the idea, and his... They did it. The divine council is referenced in other places in the Bible where you see sons of God, the high host and heavenly host. Often those were interchangeable in Second Temple theology. Sometimes they can get translated as angels. Just remember the angel, Malachim, is not a defining name. You are a human. Um, that's what we are. We are a human. Um, if we say something as an angel, that's not quite right. Because it's a spiritual being. Angel is like the occupation. It's the function. Angel means messenger. Uh, Malachim and Angelos both mean messenger. And at times they're used denoting humans too who are doing messaging things. Uh, Cherubim and Seraphim are different. 
and are not mentioned really as the angel class either. And we'll talk about the good guys later. Um, some people may be thinking, well, wait a second, Jesus is the only begotten son. Let's talk about John 3.16 real quick. Um, John 3.16 relies on the Greek word monogenes, which doesn't actually mean only begotten. It presents a problem neither with respect to Jesus having a beginning nor with respect to divine sons of God who are called gods, Elohim, in the Old Testament. The confusion extends from a misunderstanding of the root of the Greek word. For many, word, for many years, monogenes was thought to have derived from two Greek terms, monos, meaning only, and geneo, uh, to beget or to bear. So that's how they get that word. And scholars of the Greek eventually discovered, though, that the second part of the word, monogenes, does not come from the Greek word geneo, but from actually genos, meaning class or kind. The term literally means one of a kind or unique and has no connotation to time, origin, or solitary existence. Which does make sense because the New Testament also refers to us as sons of God. But the idea is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He is the only one that is God among all of God's creation, his sons. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So Jesus is the only unique Son of God. He is Yahweh. Okay. Uh, another example of this, just to put some validity to this, um, Hebrews eleven seventeen. Isaac is called Abraham's only begotten son also, monogeneous. But Isaac was not the only son Abraham fathered. Right? Abraham had lots of sons. Um, since he had fathered Ishmael prior to Isaac, the term meant, must have meant that Isaac was Abraham's unique son. He's the son of the covenant promises, the line through which the Messiah would come. Just as Yahweh is an Elohim and no other Elohim is like Yahweh, Jesus is the unique son and no other sons of God are like him. Okay, it's a lot of stuff. What about principalities and powers? Jesus and Paul use this language, powers, rulers, authorities. We mentioned before in Daniel, it talks about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. We see Hebrew writers beseeching God to punish and judge all these unjust rulers in the council. We see them praising him as not being like these fallen rulers and being greater and just. Where did Second Temple Hebrews get these ideas? How, why the need to never explain them in any of the other Old Testament references? It was already in their Torah. They already understood it in the Torah. Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. Uh, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his word is perfect, and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. 
Uh, it goes on. They sacrificed to demons that were no god, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the god that gave you birth. Rejoice with him further on in it. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children, and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Uh, more of this is echoed earlier in Deuteronomy. Um, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven. Also remember back in the day, a lot of the cultures believed that they would, they would because they had no way of describing their gods and spiritual beings, they would refer to them as heavenly beings, as these heavenly objects. So sometimes you'll see the host of, of heaven might be referred to as like, you see the sun and the moon and stars, all the host of heaven. You'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that, your Lord have, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heavens. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. All right. It's talking about God dividing mankind. It's talking about God fixing the borders of people according to the numbers of the sons of God. Um, Tower of Babel. That's when the Jews believed it happened, back at the Tower of Babel. That's when he fixes the nations. Now, that, now we'll go back to Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which, are the, children, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because, of the, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all of the earth. Notice the plural language when God comes down. He's bringing, people with, he's bringing spiritual beings with him. Tower of Babel, most likely a ziggurat. Most of the, a lot of people think it's just a giant ziggurat. Here's an example of specks of what uh, old Babylon looked like. You have the ziggurat, you have the little shrine at the top. The idea of the tower of a ziggurat, the idea is that you go up, you worship, then you get to the top and you do the right things and you can force God to come down and meet you. So basically it's like you have God on your beck and call. By building this thing and doing the right thing, you can force God to come down and deal with you. And uh, not Yahweh. So, um, so the nations received their rulers when he divided mankind and he set them up with the, the sons of God, a lot of them by the number of the sons of God. Um, 
People are unsure when the powers and principalities fell. We know that they fell by the time they're in Egypt. Somewhere along the lines there, you start getting idol worship and idolatry. Um, they set up shop. The Tower of Babel event leaves us with a list of nations. There's 70 nations in some manuscripts, 72 in other manuscripts, because some will split nations up. Um, side note, Jesus sent out 70 or 72 when he sends out his disciples first, that's an important number. When he tells them to go out and do it, he sent out the exact number of the number of nations. For each translation, it actually echoes the number. So it's pretty cool. Um, and this is when he, when he sends them out and they start doing their work. This is also when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Uh, Israel was his portion, separate and created with purpose, the start of the rescue plan to the Jews and then the Gentiles. Um, so there are your principalities and powers. That's why they have legal authority. That's what the Second Temple Jews believed. The church, the early church actually believed this up until around 300. And they started taking some of the spiritual things out. Um, when Paul's referring to the principalities and powers, when Paul's referring to going to all the nations to see the fullness of the Gentiles. He's got that list of nations. That's why Paul like Paul is like, I have to make it to Spain. It's referenced in Acts. He's like, I gotta make it to Spain. I'm gonna go to Rome, I'm gonna be at Rome for a little bit, and I get to, I gotta get to Spain. Spain was the last one in that list of nations um, that no one had been to yet. He's like, we gotta finish this. The fullness of the Gentiles. So this stuff is it's in Paul's mind. Um Jesus, uh, Jesus talks, he actually quotes Psalm 82 in John 10. John 10, the leaders come, they're trying to trick Jesus up. Jesus says, hey, you know, I'm doing all of these things. And then he says, for the Father and I am, are one. And then they, you know, Pharisees wig out, saying that you and the Father are one. And so they go after Jesus, and Jesus quotes Psalm 82, saying, you guys, you guys talk about this stuff all the time, there being other gods and sons of God. They didn't like the son of God thing. And he's like, you guys do that all the time, but I am, I'm Yahweh. And uh, of course then that John 10 ends with him wanting to kill him even more. So, um, but where this is cool, so that's, that's the idea. That's where the principalities and powers get set up, how they're allotted legal authority over places. Um, it's what they believed we'll talk about, as this goes on, we'll talk about more references in the New Testament where disciples are talking directly about this. Paul talks about this a bunch. Um, Paul is very fixed on this. Um, he's the one that uses the authorities and the rulers and all these different spiritual denotes to say, we, we, you know, now's the time. We can go do this. Um, just as kind of to bring it more into the New Testament and seeing what Jesus and God decided to do about it, Yahweh decided to do about it. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. This is good for today because it's Pentecost. Um, Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is, it that the, how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, 
Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, ah, they're all filled with new wine. Two key items in Acts 2, this is fun, connects its events to Babel. First, the flaming tongues are described as divided. And second, the crowd, composed of Jews from all the nations, are said to have been confused. In English, that doesn't seem particularly convincing, but Luke is writing in Greek. And the Greek, you, the Greek words he used here, translated as divided and confusion, are both the same words that are used in Genesis 11.7, which was Babel, and Deuteronomy 32.8, which talks about the division of the nations. Um, it's just, it's cool. Acts 2 is the reversal of Babel. The Holy Spirit comes down. He's now with us. And he reverses this whole flow. And then they start listing nations just like they list nations at Babel. It's just a reversal. It's God doing his thing in his time. He didn't give up on the Gentiles. The Gentiles are getting it. Jesus resurrected. Again, looking back at Psalm 82 when it says, Arise, O God, bring justice and take back the nations as your inheritance. When you use that word arise and you turn it into resurrection, it makes total sense. It's just another example in Psalms that they're pointing to the Messiah. Jesus is resurrected. He has the authority. We must all go out. Power has got to fall. They no longer have authority over us. They can do what they do. They're in their dying gasp, but they don't have authority over us. So today, I hope that we covered territorial spirits, the principalities and powers, authorities, dominions, thrones, rulers, worshiping other gods, legal dominions, the use of idols, and we'll talk about the giants and shades and unclean spirits and pure spirits next. Where those come from according to the Hebrews in the Old Testament. So that is it. Any questions? That was a lot. But that's the deep dive. That's all of it. I mean, there's the divine counsel thing is interesting. I want to make a note. Um, there's, there's someone out right now that talks about the courts of heaven. This idea that you can go to the courts of heaven and you can transport yourself to heaven and get into books, then go to the court and defend yourself to Satan or something. It, that's not the divine counsel. That's, I don't, I think that that's crazy. The courts of heaven, I, that's not all. That's, we're not, we're not supporting the courts of heaven thing. Um, just in case you run into that, there's a couple books on it that people are putting out. It's kind of going through the charismatic Pentecostal circles. It's, it's weird. Some weird stuff based on just revelation to one person. Um, but any questions about the divine council and the heavenly beings that get separated to nations and fall and become principalities and powers? There's books on this. There's lots of academic journals on this. 
stretch back for hundreds of years, actually. So, there, go look. There's lots of stuff out there. Yes. Yeah, it was it was misinterpreted for years, yeah. Uh that's in Greek. It's actually in Greek. It's written in Greek. The reason it, it, it does it's not a translation issue, what happened is in the nineteen sixties they found a vault that was just full. We didn't have very much for coin Greek. Historically, we didn't have a lot to look at. So what they do is they keep like a lexicon of everything they find, and they kind of make like a, a Greek dictionary type thing, so that when we go through and they translate things, they're using what they have in the dictionary. But when they found all these different things, these different items, uh, different writings, they, the dictionary got changed. They were able to update words. They are like, okay, we can see that monogeneus is used in all these other secular documents this way. That's yeah. So that's that's how that worked. They just actually they just updated the word in the lexicon. They're like, we have more uses of this word now, where we may have only had a couple in the Bible. We now have uses for this word outside of the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay. I'd, yeah, I'd have to see that. Yeah. I like unique, too. All right. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. I just ask that you'd be with us as we go out on our week. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to bow down in different regions to different beings. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ. We thank you for the inheritance that comes with that the inheritance that we partake in. And Lord, I just ask that as we go about, that we are mindful of things that may be over regions, things that may need to be cut off. And Lord, that you would help us to identify things and help others to identify trappings that they may still be living in. And Jesus, we just thank you for that power that you have, that you give to us. Yahweh, we thank you that you are God above all gods that all these spiritual beings one day will be taken care of and justice will be served. We're just thankful that we serve the Supreme God who wants to spend time and be with us, who wants his family. Lord, I'm just amazed by that. I just thank you for that. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.